Howdy. If you haven't already, make sure to follow us on all the socials. We are at History and Film on Instagram and HIF Pod on Twitter. My personal Twitter account is at TrackNerds, and you can always email me at Simmons at TrackNerds.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons, and after having spent the last few years going over world history one movie at a time, we are now kind of wrapping everything up with a tournament to determine the most interesting person in history. And this is kind of a first for the podcast where we actually recorded this week's matchup already, and I lost my audio after harping on Logan and Joe here to make sure they have a backup going so that I can have it for editing purposes. I myself only had one recording going and it locked up and I lost it. So if uh, it sounds like we're kind of saying like, well, and you mentioned and you mentioned and all that kind of stuff is because we had this conversation two weeks ago in our in our real life timeline. And uh, we're going to rehash it here today. So, gentlemen, on a scale of 1 to 10, how upset are you that we have to rehash this same Shame. conversation? <laughs> Shame. Shame. <laughs> At least it's been a couple weeks, so not as upset as I would have been if we uh, had to redo it that same day. <laughs> no, right, right. That same day. That I Even I would have been too depressed to do it that, that same day. I already forgot everything we talked about. So <laughs> I don't even remember who won. <laughs> yeah me either i might change my vote <laughs> we'll, we'll rehab it from scratch here so when a quick little and i'll throw it i'll pitch it to logan here so a quick there'll be there'll be an anachronism on the podcast here because we recorded the next episode before this episode now so we talked last time we talked about from the viewer standpoint listener standpoint uh puyi and cleopatra and then next time we'll get into t lawrence and ashaka the great but we've already recorded that one for us, even though it's going to happen next time for the listener. So when we first recorded Genghis Khan versus Elizabeth I, which is today's matchup, Logan still had a certain mug intact oh, that he was no. drinking from. And he'll talk about next week about how it is no more. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even think about that. You're just opening old wounds here. Well, it's appropriate because QE1 <laughs> is the one who took out Wyatt Earp, so Logan was going to bring it up at some point anyway. Yeah, I, I think I even had like a whole... I, I had like a whole spiel on my mug, and like I, I talked about it at length in that episode because I still had it. <laughs> you know what? You know what? Luckily, you recorded your audio, so we still have. <laughs> oh, that that's clip. true. That's true. We, <laughs> still have, we still have my. Yeah, we have t- actually two recordings of uh, me talking about that still. So, so I guess, like, yeah, I make I try to splice in some of that other audio uh, into this episode <laughs> somehow, and uh, I do still have that. So we'll, we'll see what happens. So yes, we are in the Elite Eight. Uh, of This is the second matchup of the Elite Eight. Last week, Cleopatra, or last time, Cleopatra beat Puyi uh, narrowly. It was a two-to-one vote. And this week, we are getting into Genghis Khan and Elizabeth I. And so I do like to start uh, these matchups with Joe is kind of being the new person in this round of the tournament. Do you think these were kind of the right people to make it out of their little region in the uh in the first couple rounds so would you have picked someone else maybe to come out of these regions you're gonna make me look back up the bracket again i had it open (laughs) if if i recall the first time we recorded i definitely confirmed that this was what i felt was the the right people coming out of these brackets let me let me pull it up real quick queen elizabeth where are we at oh i found genghis khan first genghis khan yeah I, i definitely think that was the the right move there and you know, obviously we'll get into more of why I think that's the right move here shortly. 
Uh, and Queen Elizabeth, I felt like that was the much tougher bracket of these two. And I know Logan uh, obviously has hard feelings about that bracket. But <laughs> I, I do think there was some, some really tough matchups there. And, and uh, you can see it. I mean, there was tiebreakers in two of those matchups. So. Well, it's mostly me voting for Queen Elizabeth and Logan disagreeing. <laughs> yeah. It's just Rich bullying me with all of the points that he had. <laughs> <laughs> he saved them all up to bet on Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, or, yeah, or, or, yeah. Logan, Logan overspent early a couple times, and uh, yeah, yeah. Well, the the yeah, the first time I overspent early to get Isabella of France through, and then the second time I was being maybe overly cautious, and I I lost every single betting. <laughs> Uh, matchup that we had up until the Gandhi T.E. Lawrence matchup where Rich had two points or three <laughs> points, something like that, and I had all 100 points. <laughs> yeah, he, he put two for Gandhi, and you yeah. had 100 I, yeah, T.E. I I, Lawrence. Yeah, I think that's all I had left at that point, yep. <laughs> After getting my way every other matchup in that in that round. Okay, so yeah, I kind of want to just, uh, I'll run through again the bullet points one person at a time here. I kind of, I kind of did a highlight reel as I re-listened to our full bios from the Sweet 16 round. And it's kind of the bullet point and then kind of let Joe chime in with maybe some things uh, that we missed or just kind of other things about those people. So yeah, uh, highlights of Genghis Khan that I wrote was when he's young, his dad is poisoned and his him and his mom are kind of like on the outs with their tribe. He had to kill his older brother who wanted to like remarry his mom because they were only half siblings. Yeah, you know, held prisoner by his dad's tribe. And we talked about the Dothraki parallels uh, with all of this. And we can get into that again. You know, the him and his child bride and then claiming the son that she had in captivity that may or may not have been his. They didn't have DNA tests back then. Uh, and the big thing is this, like the meritocracy shift that was kind of new at the time. And not just going by who was born into a high station in life and you know, wanting the people who actually did the best job. And then just the absolute conquest of most of the known world and how religiously tolerant he was throughout all of that. So that's kind of my game's kind of highlights, but we can definitely dive into uh, a little more of that stuff in detail. So like several of those things that you brought up, it kind of kind of highlights how so a lot of the time I think when you're talking to people about Genghis Khan, if they haven't read very much about him like like me prior to doing this podcast, it's like it's almost he's kind of portrayed as this like this savage warrior, savage bloodthirsty warrior, you know, like, but he really was like for his time, very progressive. So just like out of the things that you just mentioned, like his wife's uh, kid, probably not his, takes him under his wing anyway, says, this is my son. Like, you know, this is my kid. Well, he had like a billion kids. (laughs) Right. But this is like his first, this is his first kid. Right. This is, becomes his eldest son. His eldest son may not have been his. His first kid. That's um, true. Which is like, for the time is huge. Like it would have been very easy and probably would have been like the cultural norm for the time to be like, "Ah, yeah, you're, you know, we're killing that kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, you talk about, like, his religious tolerance, his cultural tolerance. Like, when he would conquer these places, a lot of the time, if he was, like, killing everyone, it was because they didn't surrender. If they were, if if he showed up and they were like, oh, all right, cool, like, we'll be part of the Mongol Empire. He's like, all right, keep on doing what you were doing. You're part of my empire now, but, like, you can still do your religious stuff, you know, whatever, however you want to worship, keep doing that, which is 
again, really progressive for the time. And then also the meritocracy thing is probably like the the biggest thing where it was something that had never never really been done or considered before. And it was one of the things that made him so successful in his conquests is because all of his leaders and his warriors were promoted because they were the best at what they did, not because of who their dads were. Which is totally different from the right, time. Right, which is like the opposite of how everyone else was doing it at the time. But it, it allowed him to be super successful because now he has all these great leaders, whether they were, you know, royalty, some of them probably were, or whether they were just, you know, a peasant who proved themselves to be a great leader on the battlefield. And he's like, oh, I like what I see in you. You know, you're moving up the ranks now. Right. And just how innovative that was. Yeah. First off, I'll state that I'm a huge Genghis Khan fan. I think he's a super fascinating character going into this thing. So uh, he was one of the, the first people that came to mind when Richie first asked me about this bracket on who I thought was the most interesting per- person in history. He was one that came immediately to mind. So excited about this matchup particularly. But, you know, kind of on the aspect of that meritocracy that he had, I think so much of that is because of the, the Mongol culture of the time. They, you know, they're a nomadic culture, like the last major nomadic culture. Um, you know, everybody else had started uh, civilizing thousands of years before. And uh, they're still on this, the, the sheep herders basically was, you know, what they were and uh, get this reputation as just ruthless conquerors and really just within their own, I guess, prior to Genghis Khan. They're just fighting rival tribes and whatnot as they uh, move around with, you know, wherever the best land is for their sheep. Um, but I think that's really what plays into that meritocracy is they don't have that like social structure that everybody else in the world has at the time. Now, everybody else has got those uh, that class system built in uh, where you have that nobility. And, and of course, they have like their, their kind of tr- their head of the f- tribe families. But uh, it's really an equality within those tribes. Everybody had a role to play. And I think that really promotes that type of meritocracy in those kind of positions. And let's let's talk a little bit about the just because we're also we, I think we're all Game of Thrones fans. But the Dothraki parallels are kind of almost obvious when you start looking at this you know this nomadic people kind of traveling along on horseback and and kind of dominating everybody and then how you know we mentioned that once his dad dies that the the tribe kind of moves on and he's on the outs now because the little the kids and the women are not as considered as as important and you can definitely see cal drogo as very much a genghis khan type of figure i think it is it is pretty obvious that that's what that's who they're based off of. And we know that like George R. R. Martin is a huge fan of history because of, you know, the way that, you know, the Starks and the Lannisters are based on the Yorks and the Lancasters from the War of the Roses. He is a student of history and he writes a lot of historical parallels into his book. So I think it it's it's like pretty obvious that that's what they're going for with the with the, you know, nomadic equestrian warriors that are the Dothraki and their, you know, meritocracy and the the fact that they have the title Kal oh, in right Kal and Khan, Khan. In, yeah in yeah. their culture which and then Khan is uh in you know the the Mongol culture we know Genghis Khan as Genghis Khan and that wasn't even his name that was just his title and like Kal Drogo is like that's the character name but his name isn't Kal Drogo his name is Drogo and his title is Kal like yeah and it is kind of it's interesting too that like in it's almost like if you took the Mongols and put them in the world of Game of Thrones, 
maybe they're not as successful because of the way that the water is between where they are <laughs> and the, and Westeros. Oh, right. Uh, whereas in real life, they were in, uh, you know, in Eurasia, Asia. And so it was nothing but land. Like they could just, right. they had, they were on horses. They didn't need ships. They, you know, that's why they had the, they don't got to cross the narrow sea. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they, don't have to, they don't have to cross the narrow sea in ships. So that's why they were so successful in our world, but not as much in, uh, in Game of Thrones. Right. Spot on as far as, you know, the, the connections there. And I, like Logan said, I think it's pretty much confirmed that, you know, the Mongols are the Dothraki and, and Genghis Khan is Khal Drogo. Like, he's his inspiration. And I think a couple of the other things there with that, and I mentioned this on the previous recording, but just kind of the demeanor and the, the way that Khal Drogo is seen is pretty much my interpretation of how Genghis Khan was seen. You know, he, he is the leader, but he's not, like, really above everybody else. He's with his team, yeah, right. yeah. He's with his his people, right? And he, he's one of the people, and kind of the same way, like, you know, in combat, Genghis Khan was involved in the combat the same way that Khal Drogo was, allegedly. And, and I think we see that even more so with, you know, Genghis Khan, like, there's no paintings or pictures of him while he was alive. Like, mm. it's it's almost like that Muhammad thing where, you know, it, it's... It's almost idolizing him to have a picture of him. And so that wasn't what he wanted. And uh, it got brought up again last time as well. But the, uh, the burial thing with Genghis Khan and how, you know, when he, it was his will that when he got buried, they would bury him in some unmarked location and then kill everybody involved with the burial so that literally nobody knew where he was buried. And it's, again, that just kind of, I'm not anybody special. I'm not above the rest of you. Yeah, that's like that's one of the most fascinating things about like the whole like the whole story of Genghis Khan's life is like it well number one no one knows for sure how he died. There's like a bunch of different theories but no one knows for sure. It was probably either like a wounded in battle or a you know just like a a disease thing but no one knows for sure. There's like a legend of some like Chinese princess that he supposedly had like captured and kidnapped and then she like snuck a little knife in when she got captured and ended up like you know wounding him mortally or something like that but which seems totally propaganda. I mean yeah, I, to- yeah. totally seems Chinese propaganda they'd be like but, yeah our princess but, came in yeah, and Yeah, but him. also who's, who's <laughs> safe? Who who knows? Um but yeah, and then the the whole thing about how he was yeah buried in some unmarked location in Mongolia and everyone involved in the burial was killed and then everyone involved in those killings was also killed like just to make super extra sure that no one knew where his grave was which also in Game of Thrones Khal Drogo is does not have like a big you know is not buried in any kind of like great mausoleum or crypt or anything he's just burned on a pyre like kind of in the middle of nowhere and then everything changes right Right. And then also there's the parallel. So when Genghis Khan died, the dragons came just like in the book. And <laughs> and a woman was the leader of the Mongols and right, exactly. tried yeah. to conquer Europe. And Hang on, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, did you miss that part? <laughs> I, 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 I think that was in the uh, extended edition, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Or wait, or real life, sorry. Extended edition of real life? Yeah, no, I missed the chapter in the <laughs> class where they talked about the, the dragons. That's, the those are uh, classified classified files. So th- there was something, too, about, Joe, you said something about uh, there's a parallel between the way the way that he killed Yeah, Viserys. I was about to mention yeah, that. What, what was, I, I don't remember what that was. Yeah, so it's not really a, a big thing in his life, obviously, but you know, one of the coolest scenes in, in season one of Game of Thrones is when Khal Drogo pours the golden crown on Viserys' head. 
And that is actually supposedly taken from Genghis Khan as well, because uh, there was a time where he killed somebody by pouring molten lava into his eye, eye sockets. Or lead, not, not molten lead. lava, sorry. Molten, yeah. molten silver. Molten, molten silver. I don't know why I said lava. Um, mm. Yeah, poured molten silver into his eye sockets That's so to good. kill somebody. That's so It's uh, <laughs> like... It's like Genghis Khan was like getting creative at that point. He's like, you know, I've killed people so many different ways. Like I've chopped people's heads off. I've shot them with arrows, trampled them with horses. Like I've done so much killing. Like it's just kind of getting boring, you know. It's kind of it's really same. Just like stabbing all these people. I'm gonna kill this guy by pouring molten silver into his eye sockets. Yeah, <laughs> just to spice it up. Kind of along the same lines. Like we haven't even talked about like his ingenuity in battle because I know that was something Logan mentioned last time oh yeah as well yeah right. just the the whole having archers on horseback it was like no one else no one else was doing that and they were so good at the riding and so good at the archery that it, it allows you to be like the best of all worlds of you know combat at that time so you could go up against infantry and massacre them because you're on horses. You could go up against traditional cavalry because you don't have to wait until you get to them to start killing them. You can shoot them with arrows from far away. And you can defeat archers by being, again, fast and agile on a horse versus being, you know, lumbery and slow with your, you know, they, they weren't wearing like a bunch of armor. Yeah, it was it was the best of the best of everything of combat at the time. Even when like attacking a like a walled city like obviously horses with with bows and arrows can't attack a walled city right. and he still figures that so out. You mentioned yeah. that he like recruit he like captured engineers and had them like right. create siege weapons. <laughs> right. Yeah, he's like he's like teach me how to build siege equipment or I'm going to torture you to death. And they're like that's an easy choice. I'll build you all the siege equipment. And so they build <laughs> they build them all the siege equipment. And even even stuff too like um the psychological warfare that he was doing where he would like they would camp out in the night and like he knew that the enemy scouts would be, you know, checking out their camp, trying to figure out how many there were. So we'd have each of his dudes build like three or four fires. And he's like, each one of you build multiple fires. So it looks like we have just a ton of dudes here. Cause you think like one fire, if, if they're counting fires, like, okay, each fire is probably for like two or three guys, but there's actually three fires for every guy. They're like, oh my god, like we're gonna get destroyed tomorrow. And so like they they're already defeated in their mind. And then you know, is it like classic uh, you know, fake fake retreats and then you ambush your enemy or you know, stuff like that, which at the time was was like, you know, had had not really been done. But he yeah, he's just a really a really ingenious uh warfighter. And I, I didn't even think about it when you mentioned that before, but it reminded me of that I'm I'm gonna be off on my facts here, but I believe it was World War Two when there was a a unit that was literally just meant to look like they were a lot bigger than they were. And they just had like cardboard cutouts of tanks and stuff. Yeah. So that's, Is that right. That's, um, that was like before. So it was pre D day in like the Southern part of, of great Britain. There was an entire unit that was like, it was like just a few dudes, but they had like a bunch of inflatable fake vehicles that you know it it's a you could you could move it like one guy could move a truck by himself so they would like do fake maneuvers with their f inflatable trucks and the germans were flying over and they can't you know they're flying so high to you know avoid being shot down that they can't tell that that's inflatable trucks and they would do like yeah. they would they had like all these radios and stuff and you would have like one dude operating like a whole suite of radios doing like fake radio calls 
being like, oh, hey, I'm this unit, and we're going to go over here. Oh, r- copy that. We're going to go over here. And they would, it was like they tricked the Germans into thinking there was this like huge buildup of forces, and it was like just a few guys in the southern part of England. Yeah, it was like supposed to like like 20 guys, right? Yeah, I don't know <laughs> how many it was. Faking this army of like yeah, it was thousands. Like way under the number that they like the Germans thought it was like this huge, massive force with all these tanks and stuff. It was just like a few guys with like some radios and inflatable tanks. <laughs> So go so Genghis Khan had inflatable Sorry, horses. Sorry, that was, that was totally <laughs> tangent. <laughs> totally tangent. But I just thought it was funny, you know, faking the the size of his army there. Yeah, but yeah. I know we mentioned it last time as well, and I, I think it's important to mention too the the obviously the scope of his empire that he created, conquering was like almost half of the known world at the time. Right, and still the largest continuous empire in world history was yep. the Mongols post well, the Genghis. It was the height after Genghis died. Yeah, it was died, like a, but a, yeah. 11 or 12 million square miles, which is insane. Yeah, it, absolutely astonishing. And then the really the impact and significance that that had in terms of trade. You know, we mentioned it last time with the, the Silk Roads <clears throat> had been largely abandoned at that point in time uh, due to you know, border conflicts and uh, it wasn't safe anymore. So they'd been largely dead for hundreds of years, and uh, now the Mongols control all of Asia, and so the entire Silk Road is under their control. And uh, it, all of a sudden, now trade is re-encouraged, and it's safe along the, the Silk Roads, because now you have the Mongols that are monitoring that, and they're patrolling that. And Logan had a, an interesting comment about that last time, but uh, about you said uh, you could walk from end to end of the Silk Road with a gold plate on your head, and... Not oh. have to worry about it, basically, or something yeah, like that. Is, that was a that was yeah. I, I forget if the, if it was something that I read and doing research or in a video or something. But yeah, they they said about at the at the height of the Mongol Empire, yeah, that it was said that you could walk from one end to the other with a gold plate on your head and not worry about getting you know hassled or robbed because you know it was so peaceful. Like it's it's all one empire, so you're not crossing any borders. You you know the security is really good because you know people aren't acting out when the Mongols are in charge. So yeah, yeah, it was yeah, it was like really a really prosperous time, and we also brought up how a lot of this was like actually after Genghis Khan was dead, but like he definitely set the foundation for a lot of this stuff. Where <laughs> we talked about the kind of moral gray area where they would take like forcibly relocate artists and engineers and mathematicians and artisans from different parts of the world to other parts of the world to spread the knowledge. So it's like yeah, they're like forcibly relocating these people, which is not super cool, but. At the same time, it allowed a lot of like really cool uh, advancements and inventions that would not have happened probably otherwise. But also, that may have led to the plague. Yeah. Well, and the just the significance of trade in general really can't be understated. Like we don't really think about it as it's not like we we think about like wars and conquests and stuff. We don't think about the impact that trade has. Right. We take it for in granted. the the yeah. spread of ideas. Right. Yeah. We definitely take that for granted. Or the plague, like Richie mentioned. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You got, hey, you got, that's kind of the, throughout human history, though. There's always kind of this give and take of the good versus the bad. And like this innovation comes with this consequence. And yeah, you're always going to have both. But yeah, it, so that is a debate of, you know, was that Mongol Empire a net positive or a net negative that you, you, could, you could debate? But it seems, it seems like a positive if you're talking about trading goods and ideas. Although then when the third of Europe is killed by the bubonic plague and that may have come over from Asia on rats and lice and all that kind of stuff, it's like, uh, oops. Hey, but ultimately, good things came out of that too, though. If you fast forward, you know, <laughs> it, it reduced food prices and it allowed specialization in northern Italy, 
uh, which led to the no fair Italian Renaissance. Yeah, no, that's, it is interesting. Yeah, that's, <laughs> so, that, that is fascinating to think about. Yeah, even the most dire straits can uh, lead to positive, you know, outcomes that we would have never have envisioned. And I'd be curious, even like right now, if we're dealing with the COVID pandemic, and you know, to what extent is you know as horrible as it's been, do we see some innovation that ends up being a net positive over the next uh, couple of decades? I'll give you an example. I think right yeah, now, uh, contactless delivery for Postmates. They'll just leave your food <laughs> at the door now. It used to be you had to actually go to your door and meet the person, <laughs> and it took a it took a global pandemic to get them to finally you know allow for contactless delivery. But that's hey, the big you know the big innovation. You got to take the good with the bad, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay uh <final> <laughs> I, I did have i did have one further note on okay yeah, 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 yeah before we move on and no you're good i just think it's you know so we talked about you know how like kind of menacing and like the the savage image of the mongols and genghis khan and and i just think it's so super cool too because like it's been said that like he their army was so fierce and so intimidating that like towns would literally surrender before ever even seeing their army like they're just like oh we heard the mongols is coming they already took that town let's go ahead and wave the white flag <laughs> send him a message that we preemptively surrender yeah yeah they're just they took down their flags already they got a bunch of white flags flying as soon as the mongols come up and it was kind of one of those things where it's like like okay we were gonna kill you but since you guys surrendered anyway like welcome to the family like you're just part of us and right it's that board that board collective idea like in star trek where they just kind of are constantly assimilating new cultures and people into the mongol horde as opposed to making them become uh they didn't make they didn't force assimilation right right yeah and it's kind of like the the tolerance logan mentioned early you know he he was known as being very religious tolerant and and culturally tolerant and so yeah if you you join their empire they weren't going to force stuff on you it's like you might have to pay us a little bit of taxes, but <laughs> welcome to the family. Like. Right, and, stabil- and the stability that comes with that, yeah, it was important. Yeah. And he, when he would absorb, like, other, when he would, like, you know, he'd fight an army, right, and then beat them, and he would, instead of just, like, massacring all the soldiers, he'd be like, all right, you're like, I'm not going to kill you, you can just come and join me. And so they would do that because they all wanted to live, but then he knew in his mind, like, okay, I can't, I can't just let all these dudes all be together because they'll start conspiring against me. So every time he would absorb uh, new guys into his army, he would split them all up. He'd like scatter them amongst all of the different yeah. uh, existing forces Forgot that he already that. had to where like no, no one group was like, you know, had a high enough percentage of dudes from any one army that he conquered. To conspire against him. Yeah. Yeah. So then it kind of forced them to all kind of work to work and fight like, together and like for each other and then he'd build this cup you know so then there's this camaraderie built in this kind of like motley crew of dudes and so now they're like even more effective right and they're not gonna mutiny against you right and you know it's a meritocracy so if you work hard you're gonna rise to the ranks yeah exactly yeah yeah no matter where you're from before before we switch because i i know logan had an awesome quote last time so i want to make sure that he gets to say that quote before we switch gears here it's the the what he said to his son right on the deathbed yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. on his deathbed yeah. or whatever yeah okay yeah so we were talking about how how the size of the empire yeah his right the size of the empire and how people were literally surrendering to him before they could even see him and it was like he was at the top of his game and when he says this quote like but before i read it like people are gonna if, if you just heard this quote out of context you think like god what if, like an arrogant douche like this guy really <laughs> thinks that like that this is this is like how big of a deal he is, but like 
he was. He was this big of a deal. And like the Mongols were this big of a deal. So on his deathbed, he tells his uh, son, Ogadai Khan, he says, I have conquered for you a large empire, but my life was too short to take the whole world. That I leave to you. Which is like, which is crazy. Right. But he's also not wrong. It, was, it wasn't hyperbole at the time. It was like, right. I literally mean it. Yeah. Right. And in hindsight, like, he didn't conquer, like, literally the entire world, but he got closer than anyone has ever. Before, before or since, right, right. At, at time of recording. <laughs> <laughs> unite, unite listeners and we will take the world. It's just a super cool quote. Like, you, how can you not be inspired as his son, like, hearing that quote? Oh, like, yeah. it, it makes me want to go, like, run yeah. through a wall. Like, <laughs> thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, yeah, let's let's uh, let's do move on to Genghis uh, Khan's opponent this week, Queen Elizabeth the uh, First. I think the last remaining English Who? monarch on this list, and of course, the English monarchy is kind of what inspired me to do this podcast in the first place. In so many ways, uh, my highlight reel for Elizabeth the First is just the idea that her father Henry the Eighth, you know, throughout a thousand years of the Catholic Church in England and a thousand years of tradition to, you know, reestablish a new church just so she could exist in the first place. Now, again, she was supposed to be male from his point of view, but that was, that was what he was willing to throw out just to make sure that she could exist. And how she goes from heir to the throne, even as a female, to an illegitimate bastard as his father keeps remarrying and finally does have a son with Jane Seymour and all those things. Uh, and then in, as a teenager, she's basically already the most educated woman in Europe, if not the world, and spoke lots of languages and did lots of translations. Then, you know, is imprisoned by her older sister, who's worried that, you know, Protestant Elizabeth is going to take the throne back or have conspiracies to overthrow the Catholic Mary. Uh, she does ultimately become queen, has the whole reputation as the virgin, virgin queen, where she refuses to marry and just kind of uses the dangles out the lure of, hey, I could maybe make an marriage alliance with you you all as she kind of is doing all her politicking throughout Europe. And then, of course, the whole Mary Queen of Scots issue with her cousin there who uh, she takes in and has to decide whether or not to put her to death, uh, which was set a dangerous precedent for an Elizabeth who's always worried about someone trying to take her throne, not to mention all the Spanish Armada stuff and all those kinds of things. So just a lot that was happening in England and Europe at the time that Elizabeth was just kind of had a front row seat for. And of course, there's the whole that whole era of her long reign is Elizabethan England into the Shakespeare stuff and all that. So just kind of a fascinating time to be alive and a fascinating woman in the center of that. So, Joe, what did we kind of miss as we look at Elizabeth the first or thoughts there? And I'm trying to even remember what I talked about last time, but I think we hit pretty much everything to, to me. You know, I think the uh, her kind of ascension to power is, is super interesting. You know, the whole uh, religious conflict that stems from her father wanting a, a male heir and then kind of the the butting heads with her sister and and ultimately her return of uh, the Protestant faith to England. Um, and you know, that's always something that I, I mention when teaching this in class is, to me, it's kind of funny because, you know, obviously Henry VIII wanted a, a male heir. First wife has a daughter and the Catholic Church won't let him get a divorce. So his solution is, you know, start his own religion, the Church of England, the Anglican Church. When Mary is born of the second wife, or Elizabeth, uh, yeah. well, now divorce isn't the issue, but the the solution is to behead her. So uh, it was kind of funny that that's not the solution for the first wife, because that would have solved the whole divorce issue anyway. Well, isn't 
technically his wasn't his justification for that. He wasn't like, oh, I'm cutting your head off because you can't give me a son. She was accused of cheating on him, which since he's the king is technically treason. So technically she was executed for treason. Correct. That might have been. Yeah, I, I hadn't yeah. actually caught that. So that that is interesting there too. But but I always get to the point where, uh, you know, obviously Mary is kind of butthurt about this because the whole reason for the Anglican church to exist is so that her parents could get divorced. And so like, it, <laughs> right. it's, it just makes so much sense for her that when she finally has power, it's like, screw your church, dad. We're going back to the Catholic church. Cause that was the whole right. reason you could divorce for Elizabeth on the opposite hand. It's kind of a good thing. Cause like the Anglican church is the whole reason she was ever born. And so I, I've always found that interesting and, and kids kind of grasp that aspect there that thinking about it logically it makes sense for one to to like the catholic church or hate the anglican church right and uh and one to be a kind of a supporter of it but she she, obviously she kind of switched england back to the church of england at the time but what she wasn't really like a a religious zealot in the way that her sister was right or even correct correct she was much more tolerant even as like hardcore into the church of england as her dad was she was just kind of like all right like we're gonna have the church of england again because like that's kind of the one that I have to support but she wasn't yeah. she wasn't really hardcore into the religious stuff like like either one of them well she she was a devout protestant but she felt religion was a personal issue and that even as queen right. she had no right to say what you personally believed or how you worshiped at home not a state issue right right, right. yeah 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 um, but she pissed off, pissed off both the Protestants and the Catholics because the Protestants were mad she wasn't harsh enough against the Catholics and taking a lot of their lands and stuff away. And then yeah. the, Catholic, <laughs> the Catholics were mad. that. But it was like, I think that's kind of like a, it's kind of a genius move. She was just enough, like, you know, cool with the Catholics that they were like kind of butthurt that she, you know, switched back to the Church of England, but not so butthurt that they were, I mean, they, they like did try and kill her a couple times, but you know, it, they weren't successful. And it, it, wasn't <laughs> yeah, like a full on, it wasn't a full on religious war. But then also the, you know, the other way she was, you know, the Church of England people like weren't like so pissed off that it was like really that big of a deal. So it was almost like she she took the perfect position where no one was like angry enough to do a revolution about it. But like there's everyone's going to it's a lose lose. Like people are going to be mad no matter what you do in that situation. But she like picked the, you know, the perfect option. To where like like just enough danger, but not an you know full on religious war, which was kind of her whole thing throughout her reign with uh, you know being hesitant to make decisions, and sometimes her decision was not right. to make a decision to let things play out, much to the you know chagrin of her uh, advisors, and there, there wasn't ever a full on religious war, but there was definitely tons of Catholic conspiracies against her, and the Pope even basically saying like, "Hey, Catholics in England." Feel free to overthrow her because she's an illegitimate bastard and a and a oh, heretic. Right. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the, the Pope was like, "Don't worry about like going to hell for murder if you kill the Queen of England. Like yeah. God's cool yeah. with it." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is which is very Catholic Church of the time. He's like, "Hey, I just talked to I just talked to God. He says it's cool." <laughs> yeah, basically a fatwa. Yeah, you count that as your uh, price for your indulgences that we're not supposed to be selling anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I always thought you know, just just the personality stuff, you know, how she you know, she also swore like a sailor that she kind of picked up from her dad. And then the one thing that we talked a little bit about last time, and I kind of want to go in maybe to a little deeper here, is just the hypothetical of you know, just think about the effect of you know we're still dealing with sexism today, but at the time we're just like you know it's women weren't expected to rule. Her sister was the first ever queen. 
only ruled for about five years, 10 years, I forget off the top of my head. And then Elizabeth is kind of then still feeling it out and just, you know, these male advisors are always trying to control things or, you know, push her one way or the other with these marriage alliances and just assisting that she gets married for the stability and just how she was so firm in her positions that she kind of ultimately wins out. But just the hypothetical that I wanted to discuss of how different is English history and in turn Europe and world history if she had been born male and that so Henry VIII divorces his first wife, has you know, he has Mary with, then marries Anne Boleyn, and then boom, Elizabeth is now, you know, an Edward or a Henry and born male. And just what are the ripple effects of that? Because then basically you could argue, well, Anne Boleyn probably then never gets beheaded. And right. when Henry dies, he's succeeded by this male version of Elizabeth who then will make uh, a marriage alliance because he wouldn't have the same concerns about needing to hold that uh, separate. So uh, any thoughts on that? Well, you never have the switch to Catholicism with Mary either. And like the Bloody Mary times. Right. It would have, yeah, the transition wouldn't yeah. have been. Yeah. She, wouldn't, she would not have been ever even in consideration to be an heir if there was a male. I think that the advisors are probably not as... They're probably Pushy. not as as big of a factor with a male as they would be with Elizabeth, because you know obviously at the time the you know sexism ran super deep. So, and it also kind of had a lot to do with the, with the way that she would be not indecisive, but very calculated in her decisions, and she did refuse to like you know name get well yeah get married you know accept any marriage proposals name an heir or name a successor, which uh, <laughs> for them which I. We talked about when she was, what was the disease that she had when she was like in her smallpox. 20s? Smallpox, yeah. Smallpox, she had smallpox. And she was like on her deathbed and her advisor was like, you need to name a successor if you die and you don't. It's like, civil war, right, it's right. Go, you're right they're, they're, it's going to get bad here. And so they had to be just like freaking out because she she did almost die. Like she, you know, right. it was, had smallpox pretty, pretty bad. Uh, but she didn't. She held out and she was like, nope, I'm not... Uh, I'm not interested in naming a successor. Uh, I'm I'm gonna live, and uh, it'll be fine. And uh, you know, it was, but like, <laughs> could have gone badly. Yeah, and I I I, th- I mentioned after we had talked last time in, in a text to you guys that I think the answer is that a male version of Elizabeth marries Mary Queen of Scots. Oh yeah, and yeah. Uh, even though she yeah. was Catholic, and I think you know if that wasn't a huge issue that it almost would have been mutually beneficial because for Mary Queen of Scots, it kind of secures her place in Scotland, even if it makes it a little bit more under the thumb of, of England, but her position becomes a lot more secure. And then also the conspiracies against a Protestant, you know, King of England at that time would uh, maybe have been lesser. I, I think it would have been mutually beneficial. And then all of a sudden James yeah. I is now actually the son of Elizabeth. <laughs> it's, it's almost like when, um, when Henry the Seventh married, um, oh, oh yeah, God, what was yeah, her name? Elizabeth the, Elizabeth of York, yeah, 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 yeah. He married the the uh, Elizabeth York basically to like kind of show like, all right, right. like we're together now, like the fighting's done, uh, like it's it's time for stability. That would have been yeah huge. And so if how would that have worked if Elizabeth was Henry the Ninth and marries Mary Queen of Scots? Is she now that would she? Would he be the king of Scotland also? Or would his heir would have been the king of England and Scotland? That would probably be the way to set it up. Because that's ultimately James I ends up being king of Scotland and king of England right. just a generation yeah, later. Yeah. Now they're getting, I, get the, I can see the Scots being a little, you know, 
miffed about the idea of the English king taking over. That goes back to like the whole Longshank stuff with Braveheart. But but maybe not because they it's it's only but it, it's a political union kind in, of in the real timeline. Yeah, James the first is the next is the next monarch. Well, right, but it's it, I think it's made a little different if it's the Scots are okay with the Scot also having the English oh, throne. They wouldn't gotcha. want the English king to then feel like he's entitled. But it, but I think it's a generation later. I do think if it's if it's the Mary Queen of Scots's and Elizabeth's the male version of Elizabeth's kid, they'd be okay with that. But they wouldn't want right. you know Henry the Ninth to be like feeling like he's in charge of Scotland while Mary Queen of Scots is still alive. Sure. That might be a little awkward. But yeah, the next yeah. generation, I think it does kind of take care of itself. Yeah, as, as long as the the kid is is the kid of Mary Queen of the Scots, Scottish like, queen. Okay, you're right, you're right. at least half Scottish. That's fine. You can yeah. be our king. And the, and Scotland had shifted to Protestantism too, so then the Catholicism would, still would die with Mary Queen of Scots, which it basically did anyway, because James I was Protestant. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, it is. It is interesting. And I guess are we uh, probably ready to go ahead and run through the vote here now? I I think there's still still a couple more interesting things with Elizabeth. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. You know, I, it was mentioned in the bio. You know, the whole the Virgin Queen thing. That's kind of interesting in the sense that it's pretty much guaranteed that she didn't die a virgin. Oh, right. And uh, it, it was more so just uh, the political aspect, like you said, of just not marrying. And I think Logan mentioned that like, there's a counterpart that is more or less her suspected lover that sh- is the only person that she ever actually loved. And it was Robert like... Robert Dudley. Dudley, yeah. She, yeah. she wasn't allowed to marry him more or less because of... It didn't give them political gain, right? Yeah. And then uh, the totally separate point worth mentioning is just the the championing of the arts uh, that she did with mm. the rise of Shakespeare and kind of the promotion of that. I think I think we actually even mentioned last time, like the the curiosity of like would she have ever actually met Shakespeare? Because oh, you right. know the theater yeah. was kind of a, a lowly position right it was it was looked down on at the time it wasn't she was a fan of it what we think of which is that's kind of sad when you think about it like she was a she was a huge fan of the theater you know she really liked shakespeare and his plays and like she's the queen she can meet anybody she wants especially in england like she can meet anyone but like she she like probably didn't because it was seen as like below her station which i don't I don't even know if she would have really cared about. That's true, and hey, and maybe they maybe they did. Maybe they did meet. I just I don't right, know if there's right, a record sure. of it. And, yeah, and, and maybe maybe they did, and, and we just don't know about her. You know, it wasn't recorded or whatever. But you know, if yeah, if they didn't, it that is kind of sad because it's like it's somebody that she admired and liked their work and had the for sure had the ability to meet. But like, if if that didn't happen, just because of oh, it's like below my station, and like it wouldn't look good if I'm you know consorting with playwrights, like that that kind of that kind of sucks. No, right, right. But we also talked about. Uh, I wanted to bring up more about the Mary Queen of Scots thing because we talked about, and this is something that I think is one of the things that that really makes Queen Elizabeth the first interesting is the way that she went about that and handled that because it's you know mary queen of scots was so they were cousins but she did end up getting involved in a plot to kill the queen but which it had it been you know anyone else really like you're done you're executed like you can't you can't be doing that that's that's treason you can't try and kill the queen uh you're you're dead and the co-conspirators were more quickly executed yeah right yeah yeah but 
Mary Queen of Scots was held for a long time and Queen Elizabeth really struggled with ordering her death because the way that she saw it, it's like this this is someone who was basically ordained by God to be the Queen of Scotland. Like monarchs were kind of hands off uh, as far as like you could capture them and, and, you know, keep them as prisoner or whatever. But like killing them is was really taboo kind of a no-no because it's, <laughs> it's like it's you're going against god's wills like god put this person in charge like you know monarchs it, it wasn't something that she wanted to do but also it was like well i can't i also can't like like she tried to kill me like i can't, <laughs> I can't just let that slide right right and it, it was kind of like one of those uh i don't remember exactly how it worked out but didn't she it was like she wrote the order or like something about how it was like a really she was hesitant about it and then she like didn't 100 percent all the way say okay kill mary queen of scots but like it that was kind of like how it was well yeah she kind of like said it without saying it type of deal it took a while even after she was found guilty of you know this conspiracy and and even sentenced to death even the actual sentence being carried out Elizabeth kind of drug her feet on. So, like, he was like, I agree she should be killed, but don't kill her just right. yet. Like, it still took a yeah, while yeah. before it actually yeah. kind of finally came about. It's like a death row. Yeah, basically. Death row for exactly, that. exactly. <laughs> and Elizabeth was like, it's like, okay, yeah, I'll admit that she should be killed, but don't, but don't do it yet. She, she was just right. very, very hesitant to pull that trigger or swing that axe. Right. And then the, the, yeah, at the, at the end, it turns out to be like one of the wildest execution stories ever with. The dude, you know, missed at first and like she had on this like the red undergarments to show that she was a martyr. And uh, after he kills her, like (laughs) her little dog runs out from under her dress and it like people are trying to wrangle (laughs) it up and the dog's like running all in her blood and getting it everywhere. Then the executioner runs and goes to pick up her head and yells, God save the queen as he pulls it up. But then the head falls out because it's just her wig. And then he's just like holding her wig up in the air and like her head (laughs) off the thing oh, yeah man. it was gr- gruesomely horrible horrible and weirdly comic and yeah yeah the last point i wanted to make about queen elizabeth because we hadn't really talked about it yet but was just kind of her her foreign affairs and so i, I mentioned last time about it'd be interesting to look through all of the like kings or queens or emperors or rulers that we have in this bracket and how many of them weren't like truly conquerors mm. like she did live during a period of exploration, and so there's obviously uh, exploratory missions with Sir Francis Drake and uh, I believe it was Hudson, both going to the Americas. But really, even at the time, England was late to colonize the New World, and so really, the I believe the only New World colony under her rule was Roanoke, which was a, a failed colony. Yeah, that wasn't that. Uh, well, she was like kind of involved with Sir Walter Raleigh as well. Who was a yes, a, yes, yes, big time um, explorer of the of the Americas? I don't, was he involved with Roanoke at all, or was he just an explorer in general? I don't believe he was with Roanoke. Uh, he is ends up being connected to Virginia. Oh, right, which is which is named after her. Yeah, you, you know, largely her foreign affairs, like I said, weren't conquest. It was more so exploration and trading post, creating creating that Britain trading post empire that later. Uh, leads to the British imperialism of the 1800s, mm. right? And uh, and so that that's pretty fascinating that that's kind of different than most of these other rulers. 
Yeah, if you hear about it dating back to this age of exploration, when you then get to the British Empire in the 1800s, that it does kind of start here. Yeah, I guess I hadn't thought about it that way. And she would have been the first British monarch to ever meet any Native Americans. Because mm. really? Sir Walter Raleigh like grabbed a couple of them and brought them back to Britain, <laughs> basically like as props, like hey, look at these like, look at these like weird savages that we found. Weird people. In the new world. So yeah, I, I don't know. That's just something else that's interesting. Uh, one thing that I, that I remember mentioning last time that goes to show how interesting she is, how many, well, number one, how many movies are made about her, which since this is history and film, I feel like I need to bring up. But also like, it's impossible to, to make like and capture her whole life just in one movie. Um, so they oh, made right. the two Elizabeth movies. They made Elizabeth and then Elizabeth the Golden Age, which are not great. But it is, it's two movies <laughs> split up over her whole life. And then you have Shakespeare Love, where she's older, and that's all about her and Shakespeare. And then you have Mary Queen of Scots, which is all about like just her and Mary Queen of Scots and their, you know, incident. So it's, I, I don't know, I just thought that that was, that kind of points to how interesting she is that you can make multiple movies about like even just a little part of her life. You can make an entire movie about it. And people have. Right. There's been multiple biopics that are all about completely different parts of her life and different yeah. periods in her life. Yeah. You know, what's awesome about this episode in, in like conversations after losing the audio, we were like, Oh, this one will go quick. But, and it's a, but now it's like hour. everything that we <laughs> talked about before is coming up. And other things that we've like yeah, true, true. Re- researched since they're coming up as well. And so it's ended up <laughs> right, super right. long. We should do this for every episode. We sh- Rich, go ahead and just delete everything else. And we'll just <laughs> you know what? Delete, delete no, this one too. No. Let's, let's go round three here. <laughs> yeah, delete this one. Next week we'll do two hours on it. <laughs> this is now the Genghis Khan and Elizabeth show. And we just, every week we discuss Genghis Khan and Queen Elizabeth. And then delete the audio so you never get the actual... Well, We'll release these, but we'll just do the same oh. episode. <laughs> <laughs> this is Schrodinger's episode that it both exists and doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> let, uh, let let's vote. Let's vote. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we wanted we wanted to rotate. So uh, last time Joe went first. So uh, I think uh, Logan, we're starting uh, with you for uh, Genghis Khan versus Elizabeth. Young. Who gets to advance to the final four? Who uh, ex- explain your vote? Uh, so, I'm watching the clock here, so I guess try to be brief or we're not going to get to this next episode. I do want to clarify uh, before I vote that, so I'm voting for Genghis Khan, but I want it to be clear that I'm voting for Genghis Khan and not just against Queen Elizabeth I. I'm not holding her personally responsible for breaking my Wyatt Earp mug. <laughs> <laughs> right, I think you blame me more for that than her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, but I... I you know, in in all sincerity, I really do think that Genghis Khan deserves to go to the final four and beyond. You know, when we were first making this bracket, like he was one of the first people that I thought of, even before we knew like how we were going to divide things up or who else we were going to have in it or what we wanted to, you know, have it be like, he was one of the ones I was like, oh, Genghis Khan for sure has to be in there. And I didn't even really know that much about him. You know, definitely not as much as as before. I did the the whole bio on him for the Sweet Sixteen, but yeah, it's you know every every time we talk about him, I feel like he just gets more and more interesting. Some of these people we talk about, it's like okay, like as we if if we discuss them multiple times, it's like all right, like yeah, you know, it's you get kind of used to hearing about how you know interesting the people are. 
but with Genghis Khan, it's like every time we talk about him, like I just get more stoked to talk about Genghis Khan the more we talk about him. And uh, yeah, so Genghis Khan is is my vote. I'll go ahead and hop in because for me, it's obviously Genghis Khan. Um, you know, I, I think that he he is such a, a fascinating character in history. And you know, I mentioned going into this episode that he's somebody that I've always really enjoyed learning about. There's just so much stuff. There's so much stuff that we didn't even get to touch on that is so fascinating about his life and his uh, you know, rise to power, his uniting of the Mongol clans, his conquering of the largest empire, land empire ever in history. You know, we, we mentioned like, you know, just because you conquered, there's a lot of people that conquered a lot of land, but, you know, in the, the way that he did it and his governing of that empire, I think is, is super, super cool. and. Um, the not putting himself above everybody else, the meritocracy and that equality within the Mongol Empire. Uh, so me, for me, it's hands down Genghis Khan. And yeah, I mean, this is a clean sweep. And as much as I've been advocating for Queen Elizabeth this whole time and vo- voting <laughs> for her or you know breaking all my tie, using all the tiebreakers to get her past all of Logan's picks, uh, <laughs> that is. Uh, that has come to an end. Of course, I guess it's a it's two, it would be two to one even if I if even if I did go uh, Elizabeth. But no, it, it's it's Genghis Khan. It, it's just it's just the ambition of what he accomplished versus we're talking about all this Elizabeth stuff for Henry the Seventh, and it's that's all just on the island of Great Britain, and it's fascinating. But the scale of what Genghis Khan was doing was just on a whole other level, not just within this matchup, but within all of world history. The scale of what Genghis Khan was doing is almost unparalleled, if not completely unparalleled. And just yeah, the meritocracy stuff is fascinating at that time. And just yeah, it, it's it's it does have to be Genghis Khan. So he advances to the final four, where he will face Cleopatra. And then the last thing we do want to talk about before we kick it to the next episode here, uh, just like we did with Cleopatra. And figuring out the relics that she would have gotten from everyone that her and everyone else she had defeated had conquered. Basically, we gave her the eight relics that have uh, come from all the people that she defeated along the way. So we want to do the same thing here uh, real quick with Genghis Khan. And what are the eight relics that he is going to carry into the final four when he faces Cleopatra? And we did already kind of hash this out. I'll kind of read through them here, but guys, uh, feel free to chime back in in here as well so i think i had first mentioned that right, logan and i were just like oh you know the war horse or the bow for genghis khan but then joe mentioned like no just given the entire golden horde of the mongols as the yeah. thing he, he takes <laughs> into the the final thing here and then defeating queen elizabeth though he's got to have his face painted white to cover smallpox scars or whatever so yep. he'll have he'll have the white painted face of uh queen elizabeth uh when we talked about cardinal richelieu we were trying to kind of figure out, you know, what, what he would get from him. And my first thought was, oh, he should get like the the robes, the red robes of, you know, of Liminance Rouge. And then I was like, well, but like every cardinal had that at the time. And Joe was like, uh, yeah, but like name any of them. <laughs> right. Like, oh, yeah, that's, right. That's a good point. That's yeah. a good point. So he gets the red robes of uh, of Cardinal Richelieu. Right. I had mentioned the yeah possibilities of like oh, his distinctive facial hair that Richelieu had or his network of spies. And then we kind of thought that was made a little too abstract. And they, uh, you do kind of have to go with the uh, the red robes, which you do see similar stuff with Pope Julius II, which is who Genghis Khan beat in the first round. But ultimately, again, we decided to go go big there and give uh, 
give Genghis Khan the Sistine Chapel that Pope Julius II commissioned right. for Michelangelo. And they're just transporting that with them. Yep, yep. And then what did you, you give him from Wyatt Earp there, Logan? Oh, his uh, Wyatt Earp's uh, Colt revolver. Okay, yes, yeah. yes. That was an easy choice. You know, it's iconic. It's uh, it's definitely, it's it's iconic for Wyatt Earp, and it's definitely the thing that Wyatt Earp would have had that Genghis Khan would have wanted the most. He'd have been like, <laughs> hell yeah, yes. that thing is awesome. Give me one of those. Yeah, Forget bow and arrows. Yeah. That's, a, that's a good way to think about it. And then uh, on his lapel or on his, you know, red cardinal robes, though, I was going to put the Tudor Rose from Henry VII, and we gave him in his back pocket, he's got Mozart's sheet music. Mm-hmm. And and then the last one would be from Robert the Bruce, which is who Henry the Seventh beat in the first round. I chose the the sword that he killed uh, John Common with. He killed uh, one of his right. rivals in a church, and so we're going to give Genghis Khan that sword that he used. So yes, as Genghis Khan now here goes into the final four, he is dressed in the red robes of Cardinal Richelieu, which is uh, emblazoned with a Tudor rose. He has the golden Mongol horde behind him. They're somehow all underneath the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> <laughs> He's got Mozart sheet music in his back pocket. His face is painted white, just like Queen Elizabeth I. And he is uh, wielding Wyatt Earp's Colt revolver. And I'm picturing him kind of twirling it like Doc Holliday in Tombstone as he, as he, <laughs> as he kind of does so. Uh, so he is ready for action in the final four here. Where again he'll meet Cleopatra, and that's going to be a fun matchup to discuss. That is a that is two powerhouses in this whole tournament. So yes, next time we will get to the matchup of T. E. Lawrence versus a shock of the great. So stay tuned, and thanks for listening. Yeah.